All right, good morning. Let's uh, flip over to Romans chapter 11, and let's finish this. So, if you remember Romans chapter 11, we looked at it last week. Uh, I'm not sure how many weeks we spent, but ultimately, this all begins with Romans 8.28, right? Uh, As we've been looking through this, this whole thought has all started with the idea that God works all things together for good, for those that love him and for those who are called according to his purpose, right? So why bring that up again? Because what we've looked at through 9, 10, and 11 is Paul's demonstration, whether it's him presenting arguments and answering them or him presenting Old Testament scriptures and uh, for us in, in a New Testament, um, for New Testament consideration. But the whole thing has been that God is sovereignly working on behalf in every event in every life, in every country, in every piece of land on the earth, he's sovereignly working for those whom he foreknew, right? He didn't sovereignly decide who would be saved. He foreknew who would choose him, and he sovereignly gave them a destiny. He said those whom he foreknew, he called them, and he predestined them to be conformed into the image of his son. And so what's happened in chapter 9, he began demonstrating kind of on a, a grand scale God's sovereignty, that God sovereignly chose Abraham and made promises to Abraham, that God sovereignly chose Isaac and Jacob. Then he gives the kind of the negative example, that God sovereignly used Pharaoh in the hardness of his heart, and that that God, uh, in a sense, sovereignly confirmed um, Pharaoh's hardness and used him to demonstrate his power to his chosen, Israel, right? And then we have in chapter 10, he brings up some arguments regarding the gospel and and how God's sovereignly working in Israel. So he begins that whole thing by saying, look, is it possible that Israel didn't hear? And he says, no, Israel heard. And he pulls from the Old Testament quotes that God has always been reaching out to them. In fact, he ends chapter 10 by saying God's opinion or God's um, report or his testimony of how he dealt with Israel is that he held his hand out all day to an obstinate nation. So from God's perspective, he was sending prophets, he was doing these things, he was inviting them back to him, but they were choosing not to come back to him. And then when we got uh, at the end of chapter, or I should say the middle of chapter 10, he talks about, did they not hear? And he says, no, they heard. Maybe somebody didn't get sent. No, someone was sent. And he brings up all these possible arguments to why Israel rejected the gospel. Maybe they didn't understand it. He says, no, they understood it. It was because of a hard heart that they rejected it. So these are important things because a lot of times, and I'm not trying to trash any doctrine or something like that, when when we read 9, 10, and 11 without understanding that it is, in fact, a commentary on this idea that God is working everything in sovereignty for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose, we can get some very weird ideas about what he's saying. And we can start to look at it like he just hardens whom he just goes, you know what, I'm hardening your heart, so you go to hell. And I'm sovereign and I'm glorious, so you can do that. And now I'm going I'm, to, you know what, I'm going to soften your heart. And so you have a soft heart, so you, just, you get to go to heaven. As if he's kind of arbitrarily exercising sovereignty on the world to, to work out some, some purpose. When in fact the opposite is, is happening. God is working sovereignly, but he's working on behalf of those who out of their will will choose him. And so he's able to do such a great thing. Now, last week in chapter 11, we looked at this because he's going to continue the, the, the conversation about uh, Israel, and he's going to, uh, first he brings up, and we looked at this, that he brings up the question, so if Israel 
rejected God, then was it so they'd be, they would fall forever? And he says there in verse 1, I asked then, has God rejected his people? By no means. And, and we, we looked at this last week. Has God rejected all of Israel or has he rejected them forever? And this is also an important context for everything we've been talking about and especially what we're talking about today. When God says that Israel rejected him, we have to understand, is he speaking generally or is he speaking literally? Because if we say he's speaking literally, then what we're saying is that every single Israelite rejected God. Is that what happened? No. What happened on the day of Pentecost? You have Israel, they, you know, at the time of Jesus, they estimate Jerusalem was about 15,000 people. But during Pentecost, it's like the rod run. It swells to like a couple of million or a million and a half, somewhere around there. And so when the people that were coming to Jerusalem on Pentecost were who? They were Jews. Gentiles are not swelling there. Now they may be Hellenistic Jews, meaning they were Jews that had converted from uh, uh, some sort of um, pagan hedonism, but they were themselves Jews. They were practicing Jews. Did some uh, Gentiles get saved there? Well, yeah, maybe. We have no idea. It doesn't specify for us. But what we do know is that the original 3,000 were most likely a very high percentage of Jews. So when, he, when we read these things that Israel rejected or Israel did this or Israel did that, it's important for us to remember that he's speaking a generalization. But there are individuals that actually received Jesus, isn't there? Nicodemus, right? He is a Jew. He's a prime example of a Jew. He's on the Sanhedrin. He's a Jew of Jews. He receives Jesus. You have in the book of Acts where you have synagogue leaders, Jews, that end up receiving Jesus. So when we read these things, just remember, we're not just making hard, fast rules and saying, well, the Jews just rejected him. No, there were those whom he foreknew that didn't reject him, okay? And they received the same destiny to be conformed to the image of Jesus as any Gentile did. So as we read this, just, re just remember we're talking generalizations and we're talking people groups. And that, I think, can help us to understand really what's going on here. So he says, hey, did, did God reject his people? No, God did not reject his people. And he's going to, in the example he gives, and we covered this last week, and it was the example with uh, the prophet of Baal, and, and when uh, Elijah is upset that he tells Elijah, hey, don't worry, I have 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal yet. All right, those, are, those were Israelis. Then he's going to go on, and he says, verse 7, he's going to present another question. What then? Israel failed to obtain what, is, what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, the eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. So as we're, remember, we're talking about generalities and people groups and these type of things. So the elect, those whom he foreknew, right? Because we're always coming back. This is where context matters so much. If we didn't look at context, if we didn't consider Romans 8, if we didn't go back and read the quotes in the New Testament, right? What's, as a good Bible student, your rule, any time you see a quote, on the Old Testament and the New Testament, go back and read where it's from. It will help you understand the context of the, the quote is being pulled out of, nine times out of ten. So he comes back and he, and he makes this, this statement and he quotes, and the, the what then is like, so what does this mean? What do we do with this? And he says, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. We already know why Israel failed, because they sought God's righteousness, literally a righteousness of their own, by works. So they rejected faith. As he quoted earlier, that the, the, the cornerstone that God provided, Israel rejected, right? So that was, that was a prophecy. It was fulfilled. 
Now, when we read this quote, God gave them a spirit of stupor, is it literal, all of Israel, or is there something more here? Because if we go back and we read this quote, if we were to turn to Isaiah 29 and we were to read this quote, what we would know is that this is directly talking about the prophets of Israel. That what happened was Israel is rebelling, the prophets are rebelling, and so God says, I'm going to shut the eyes of the prophets and I'm not going to speak to them anymore. I'm paraphrasing. And this was the prophecy. So this was fulfilled in a certain time in a certain place to Israel from Isaiah to Israel. He already said this to them. But now Paul is reviving this to say a similar thing is occurring. Not a, a, a spirit of stupor did not fall upon every single Israeli, right? Because some Israelis got saved. They received Jesus as Messiah. And some Israelis are doing that to this very day. So I'm not trying to make a mountain out of a molehill. I'm just trying to say when we read these things and we're understanding them, let's be very careful we don't just kind of like throw out everything that we know, all the logic, all the, the context, you know, all these things, to, to suddenly go, well, I guess they just all rejected him and God hardened all their hearts and to hell with them. Because that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, no, he didn't do that. That isn't what's happening. That Israel didn't receive the promises because of their own unbelief. And in their unbelief, God, because the prophets were spewing false prophecies and things like that, he shut their eyes and he closed their ear and he spoke to the prophets no longer. The next verse that we have is this. When David, he says, this is Psalm 69, and it's, it's uh, uh, esteemed by many as a messianic psalm. It's got a lot of parallels to the cross and to our Lord. But he says, let their table become a snare and a trap. And so he quotes David out of a psalm referring to the fact that Israel's table, their provision, their blessing, Right, you know, for every Thanksgiving, I don't know what they do now, but when I was a kid, everybody made like a turkey with their hand, and they like cut out a cornucopia, right? I mean, that's just fun to say. It's a cornucopia, and you have this, the cornucopia, like it, you, you got to, I remember, I don't know why it was so momentous in my life. I can literally remember like 40 years ago, making my cornucopia and like putting like little grapes in it. Remember that? You're like, I don't even actually know what a cornucopia is, to be honest. Is it like a basket? Is it a weird fruit we don't have anymore? But anyway, so you stuff it with stuff, right? It's like this big blessing. It's like this big abundance. And that's the idea. What happened to Israel is their, what was their blessing, what they had from God, it stumbled them. Their provision, all that, they became introverted and it hardened their hearts and they were stumbled. And David's commenting on that. And it's actually a pronouncement and a, uh, from the psalm and, and a prophecy about it. So then we, we left off in verse 11. So he's going to respond to himself. And he's going to say, so I ask. So in light of the fact that Israel was hardened, in light of the fact that they rebelled in, in Isaiah's day, in light of the fact that God hardened the heart, or I should say, uh, put their, the, closed the eyes and, and closed and... and uh, uh, plug the ears of their prophets in light of the fact that their table is now a snare to them. Verse 11, so here's the question. Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. So if all this happened and God allowed it to happen and then God closed the eyes of their prophets and the ears of their prophets, does that mean that their fall is forever? You say, how do you know that? And this is going to get, uh, I'm not trying to be super cerebral or anything like that, but in the Greek, the word fall, it's in the aorist active. And that sounds really fancy just to mean this. Did they fall and it will continue to fall forever? That's the idea. So Paul is asking, was the fall of Israel, generally speaking, as a nation, right? Because we know Israelis got saved, and we know there were Old Testament Israelis got saved. 
did the nation in general fall forever? Is he done? Is their calling over? Right? That's the question. And so he then responds to himself, uh, and he says this, by no means, no, of course that wasn't going to happen. Rather, through their trespass, literally their misstep or stepping off the path, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more their full will their full inclusion mean? So Paul says this. He says, look, if they didn't fall forever, if their fall is not permanent, if their, if their, their dull, dullness of heart or, or of listening is not permanent, what can, we, what can we get from this? What does this mean for us? And he says, look, through their, their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, a couple things about that. Number one, Gentiles could always be saved. That's an important idea. From Abraham's day until Jesus comes, and we talk about this, there are laws in the Israeli law, in the Levitical law, that were designed for how you treated Gentiles. And they could come live with you. They could come live among you. They could come and be a part of some of the temple and the, the tabernacle activity, not all of it. But when you look at when God says he called Israel, he called them to be a light to the Gentiles. So it's not as though God just kind of picked Abraham and he's like, you know, what? I hate every other human on the planet, but Abraham is my man. There's actually a lot of extra biblical evidence, and I just, it's extra biblical, I mean, it's not in the Bible, so you take it for what you will, that, that uh, there's a good chance that Abraham's father was possibly a priest for a moon god, which is why they end up in Haran. So for some interesting reading, again, it's not in the Bible. It's just some extracurricular possible history. But so you, you have to understand that it wasn't like Abraham was seeking Jehovah. It wasn't like Abraham was like all about him some Yahweh, and so God was like, this guy's really special. I'm going to reveal myself to him. He just sovereignly chose him. And as we know from Abraham's life, he didn't obey God a lot. So it wasn't as if he had worked. It was, it was, it was God outreaching to Abraham knowing that Abraham would receive him, and then he sovereignly chooses Abraham to then work his, his purpose out in ultimately being in the church. But anyway, before we get too far off the beaten path there, so that, that what's happening here is that Gentiles could always be saved, they could always come to God, and there were always Gentiles that were throughout Israeli history that were coming to God. So he says there that their fall... It enabled that salvation to come to the Gentiles. Now, this was also very practical because Paul, when he went to anywhere, if you read the book of Acts, when Paul goes to a new city, and there were others too, whether it be Peter or Philip and his five virgin daughters or prophetess daughters and all these things, five prophetess virgins, I think is what it says. But anyway, all those, those, those people, when they would go places, where did they go? They went to synagogues, Right? Everywhere you see Paul go, where does he go first? He goes to the synagogue. And then what happens is he preaches the gospel. And many, many, many of the Jews were perfectly fine hearing that Jesus might be the Messiah. Now, obviously, Paul's saying he's the Messiah. And they're all fine with that. You ever notice that? It's not until he says, Paul says, and Jesus, they, the Jews tried to kill both of them for this. When Paul and Jesus both say to different people groups, and Gentiles can be saved too. And that's where they're like, we're going to kill you, right? They try to kill Jesus for that. He said, hey, 
For example, the, the example with Jesus is when he's pointing out that Naaman, a Gentile, was the only person in the Old Covenant that we know of that got healed of leprosy, that went to Elijah. A Gentile. And as soon as he said that, the Pharisees are like, you're dead. You can't say that. Then also, when Paul, he goes, and remember at the Areopagus, or not the Areopagus, but there in Ephesus, when he's at the, uh, uh, at the um, uh, amphitheater, huge amphitheater, seats like 25,000 people. Uh, he's at this amphitheater, it's excavated today. And, and, he's, and he's telling them, and they're, they're listening to him, they're considering it, and then he says, and the Gentiles can be saved too. And then what happens? A massive riot, and they try to tear him to pieces. See, they, they rejected the idea that Gentiles could be saved, mostly because for the previous 800 years, you know, it's, it's interesting, uh, you're, you know how you're, you're, you have a, an Old Testament and then a New Testament in your Bible, and there's that like blank page? That blank page represents about 400 years. It's kind of interesting. That from Malachi to Matthew is about 400 years. And so, but for the previous 800 years, Israel has been conquered by pretty much any heathen nation that walked by. And not only are they conquered, they get their land salted, they get their trees cut down, they get their women raped, they get their everything pillaged. I mean, we're not talking about uh, what it looks like today, oftentimes. We're talking about just savagery for 800 years. And so for Jesus or Paul or anybody else to say, yeah, those people that's been doing that to you for 800 years, they get to save too, get saved too, purely because I'm going to pay for it. That would be hard to digest, isn't it? It's called forgiveness. Anybody here ever struggle with forgiveness? Maybe like one time somebody stole your candy bar. You know what I'm saying? Like forgiveness is hard. Amen. And so here's, here's these Jews not only are they a little bit, many of them, off base spiritually because they're trying to earn righteousness with God, and in their mind, they are, right? They told Jesus, we're sons of Abraham, we're righteous. And Jesus says, God can of these stones raise up sons of Abraham. You know, they, they thought that they were being successful in their righteousness. And all the Gentile dogs, which is what they called Gentiles, all the Gentile dogs were fuels for the fire of hell for what they had done to them, and were, they, were, they hated them. There was no place for them. And so when the, the message comes along, hey, you know what? You can be saved and so can the Gentiles. They're like, no way. We emphatically reject that. That's just that's not true. And they raised against it. So Paul here, and he's asking these questions, and you have all this kind of stuff that's going on in, in Jerusalem and Judea uh, and in the life of the Jews. And he's making this point saying, look, God is able to use their trespass. How do we know? Well, one, he says that, but two... What have we been referring to this whole time? That God works all things together for good. For those that love him and are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28, 29. That's what starts off this whole thing. We're still continuing in that vein. And what Paul is demonstrating and beginning to demonstrate here, he says, look, even by the majority of Israelis rejecting the gospel, it has turned out to be life to you. In a very practical sense for Paul, because he is the apostle to the Gentiles who started off being the apostle, well, who started off outreaching to Jews, put it that way. And so in his outreach to Jews, because of their resurrection, he was able to go to the Gentiles. That isn't to say that Gentiles could not be saved if Israel hadn't rejected God. That's, that's not, we're not saying that. If Israel had been saved, the Gentiles would have gotten saved too, but in this sense, 
because they were already being saved. But in this sense, it opened up a wide door for God to begin to work mightily in the Gentiles. So God was able to use the rejection of the Jews to himself and use it for a, a mighty movement of Gentile salvation. Even to the fact that the church, kind of the epicenter of the writings of the Bible, moved from Jerusalem to Antioch. You ever notice that? It's all Jerusalem, 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 until when? Barnabas goes to Antioch. And then all of a sudden, where is everybody sent out from? Where are all the missionaries coming out from? Where, where's all the action happening? Antioch. If you go back, yeah, there are the, the, you still have the, the, uh, some of the apostles living in Jerusalem. There's some really interesting things to think about there. You ever wonder, like, why can James and Peter live completely unmolested and walk around perfectly fine in Jerusalem? But as soon as Paul comes, the Jews are like, we're killing that fool. And that James even has to say, like, hey, hey, we need you to tone it down. They all think that you, you preach against Moses. It's very fascinating how, how the, the early church worked. It's just been, always been broken. It's awesome. And it's always been broken, and God has always done amazing things through it. There's always been issues. There's always been disagreements. There's always been all, forever, like day two. And yet God has always sovereignly used his church for his sovereign purpose to build it, to make a bride for his son. He's never been limited. No rejection has ever cost God his purpose. It's never happened. He's just been able to use it. So he's going to go on here and he says, look, if, if the trespasses meant treasure or riches for the world, that doesn't mean the world like and its system in the sense that like Satan being the prince of the power of the air, but world as far as the people, people getting saved. And if their failure means riches for the Gentile, how much more will the full inclusion mean? So when God continues to work in the Gentiles, right, because we're still under the same question that we started in verse 11, is their fall forever? So if God is still going to work in the Gentiles, how much better and amazing will it be when Jews who have been foreknown, part of the chosen based on foreknowledge, when they receive their Savior, when they receive Messiah? It'll be an incredible, it'll be life. So he's going to go on. He's going to keep answering this. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. And this is important. So now he says, I am speaking to the Gentiles. Again, so he was talking about the Jews generally, and now he's speaking to the Gentiles with an S. Right? So he's speaking to generically the group of Gentiles. Everyone who is not seminally born of Abraham. So that's a big swath. It's a lot of people, right? He says, I'm speaking to you. I want to say something to you. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order that somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So now he's going to give a second. He says, I'm talking to you Gentiles. I want you to consider something. He says, look, I am your apostle. An apostle just means uh, like a commissioned person or someone who's sent with authority or a person on a mission. Uh, you have the kind of the capital A apostles, right? Uh, the big 12, as it were, and, and Judas obviously forfeits that, and Paul kind of gets melded into the fold. So you have capital A apostles. And, and then you also have other people in, the, in Acts, for example, in Romans 14, 14, it says the apostles, Paul and Barnabas. Is Barnabas one of the big 12? No, he is not. 
So Barnabas is likened to have an apostolic ministry, someone who is, they've been commissioned, remember in Acts 13, they have the whole leadership there, they're praying, they're fasting, and the Holy Spirit says, minister to them and said, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas for the work. Right? So he is commissioned by the Holy Spirit with Paul to go on this mission. So Paul says, look, I am the apostle to the Gentiles. In other words, I have been sent and commissioned by God to speak to you guys. He says, I want to tell you as a commissioned apostle, and I, I guess I would say this, there are no more capital A apostles. So if anybody rolls up on you and they're like, I am a, some sort of vicar, or I have directly heard from God and I will tell you what you have to do, you can reject that because we know what we have to do. Right? Now, if someone says, hey, I have an apostolic ministry, that might make you feel weird because you're like, why are you announcing that? But it could be a perfectly valid thing. They're just saying, hey, God's commissioned me to, to come and do this. I'm an, I have an apostolic ministry. I'm here to bring you coffee. I don't know. However you want to fill that in, but you know, that's, that's kind of skinny there. So he says, I am your apostle. And as that, he says, I magnify my ministry. It might seem a little weird. He's literally saying, I mega. I make it bigger. I show off my ministry. And he, and he says, the reason I'm showing off my ministry, he goes, I want the Jews to see it. I want the Jews to see me coming to you and giving you the gospel of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins through his blood and the power of his resurrection. And I want them to see that and go, I want that. It's not an unhealthy jealousness, jealousy, I should say. <laughs> it's not an unhealthy idea. It's the idea that someone sees that a Jew would to see. Because what are they doing? They're pursuing a righteousness through the law by works, right? Isn't that what we've read multiple times now throughout these chapters? They're pursuing righteousness, but they're pursuing it by works. They think that by doing stuff, they can be made right with God. So when they see the Gentiles enjoying the Spirit of God, enjoying the fruit of the Spirit of God, enjoying the joy and the peace and the, the presence of God in their midst by simply believing on Jesus, that they would say they would be willing to lay down their works and to say, I want that. And it's funny because it still works today. You know, it, it, there's obviously oftentimes a time to give someone the gospel and to tell them that Christ died for them and rose from the dead and these things. Oh, there's definitely that time. But, you know, it's funny because Jesus told us, you want to know how everybody, in, in John um, 15, he says, do you want to know how everybody is going to know you're my disciple? If you love people. That's how they're going to know. He says, herein shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Because if you love someone, and in our, in our day and age, if you don't trash talk people, somebody's going to be like, you're weird. They're going to see that. If you don't go to the water cooler at work and just rip on everybody at your job that's not the person that you're standing there with, you're going to stand out. If your Facebook isn't filled with vehement hatred for the other political party, you're going to stand out. If your Twitter is, is announcing the love of Christ to people, if you care for people, if you have people over to your house, if you listen to people, if you do I think what we would call common courtesy, or at least it used to be. I'm not even that old. I'm really, I'm not that old. It used to be, right? <laughs> if you just display that, you will stand out in your generation. And people will say, there's something different. What they're going to do, they're literally, and I'm not just like blowing pastoral smoke here. People will literally look at you and go, I want that. What do you have? I've seen it work. I've seen it where people, people that, that you know, had jobs and they, they, weren't, 
They weren't uh, preaching the gospel every day, but suddenly they're bringing people to church. You're like, how did that happen? They're just like, oh, you know, that was, they were just talking, and they were like, well, don't you follow Jesus? You seem pretty chill. You know, worldly language for like, you have something I don't. And so Paul says, that's what I'm trying to do. I want people to know how great Jesus is. I am the apostle given to you, and I'm hoping that when the Jews see that, that some of them, not all of them, but that some of them will get saved. That they'll come and they'll say, I, I want that, well, that life that, that you have in your, in your Gentile gathering you got going on over there. And he's going to go on, he says, look, and he makes a similar um, assertions as he did in the verses above. He says, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean from life, uh, uh, but life from the dead? And there's some interesting implications here that, that uh, and I'm not going to get to it for, for time's sake, but if you want to research it, um, based out of some verses in Ezekiel and Revelation, there's a good chance here he's, he might be talking about the rapture and how uh, the, the, there will be regenerate Jews in the rapture and stuff like that. It's kind of interesting, but it'd be a lot to, it'd be a, a teaching in itself. But he says, look, their acceptance is going to mean life from the dead. So at the very least, he's saying, look, their acceptance of the gospel, it will only reap more life in the world. There will only be more salvation. There will only be more good from it. But remember, he's answering the question, did they stumble forever? Right? Is this the end of their... And he's saying, no, look at all these things. Look at what God is doing. Which is the answer to what question? How does everything work out? That God is working all these things together for good, for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. That's all the context that's happening here. He's saying, hey, the Jews rebel. God used that. He started saving Gentiles. Hey, later on he's going to say, if you rebel, God will use that. You know, so there's, he's pointing out all these ways that God is using all these different things and doing great things from it and reaping life from him. Now he gives, this, he gives us two analogies. In verse 16, he says, If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And we're like, yeah, of course. That's exactly what I was thinking. That's my conclusion. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. <laughs> You're like, okay, cool. <laughs> right on, Paul. Sounds good. So it's, it's kind of bizarre, but there's, there's, for us, not for them probably, but there's, there's two ideas here. One is from the Old Testament. Well, they're both from the Old Testament. One is from the law, and one is from how God looked at his people. And so when uh, a person harvested their field, uh, and an Israeli were to harvest their field, then they would take the first part of the harvest that they got, which was called the first fruits, and they would take that to the priest, and the priest, they could either make a cake out of it, or you could just bring grain. There was different ways, but they would bring that, and then the priest would wave it before the Lord, which I would love to see someday, just be like this big wafer, like, yay. But anyway, so they wave it before the Lord. And by waving it before the Lord, you were by faith offering what God had given you. And you were saying, this is from you. You gave this to me. This was your grain, it's your land, and we're your people, and you've given this to us. And so, in a sense, that offering sanctified or set apart the entire uh, your entire harvest. That's what God said. He said, if you offer this to me, that's a sanctified offering, a set-aside offering for me. And that, the heart idea is that you are, you are setting aside, you're acknowledging that everything you've received is from me. And so your whole field is holy because you're acknowledging that through that offering. Does that make sense? So that's the first example that Paul gives us. And he says, look, if the, if the offering, if the first fruits is holy, then the whole thing is holy. And then the second part that he gives us is, is the idea from just how God looked at Israel as a, uh, an olive tree or a fig tree. But if the root of the tree is holy, then so are the branches. 
And in this case, the idea here is that most likely, and this is debated, so you can come to your own conclusion, that Paul is just reiterating the fact about Abraham. That everyone who came from Abraham, since Abraham was right with God by faith, he was the first fruits, in a sense, of this, that the whole lump is holy. That everything that God is doing through Abrahamic promise is holy. So Abraham had certain promises. He wasn't given all the promises of Israel. Abraham's covenant was to Abraham. And it was that all the nations of the world through you would be blessed, right? So the first was Jesus, and then I'll give you a land, right? And then in Israel, because Abraham would never dwell in the land that he was promised. And so that ultimately ended up being Israel. And now we don't live in Israel, and we don't claim the promises about the land. I don't think any of us are going to go over there, or that God would want us to go over there and start marching around saying, this is my land. No, because our inheritance is in Christ, in heaven, okay? So in the first example, the example of the law, that through Abraham, the whole lump is holy. But in, in, remember, even whether it's through generalization or specifics, that each person becomes part of that lump. How? By faith, Right? Abraham lived by faith. He was righteous with God. Abraham is like the most simplest of faith. It's the, it's, it's the best example that there ever is of faith. There's no threat of judgment to Abraham. We don't ever read that God came to Abraham and said, hey, here's the funny story. If you don't accept my promise, then bad things are going to happen. He literally just shows up and says, I'm going to use you to bless the whole world, and I'm going to give a son to your barren wife. And he's like, yes, I received that. And God says, hey, because you said yes, you're right with me. It's pretty wild, pretty pure faith. Yeah, 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 sure. You want to bless me? I'm in, 100%. You want to bless the whole world through me? I kind of figured out it would happen anyway, but I'm, no, I'm just kidding. But you know, it's just like, yeah, cool, I'm in. And so he says, look, if, that's, if the first fruit was holy by faith, the, sec- the, the lump is holy. Now, in the second part with Israel, who's the root of Israel? It's Abraham. Right? So if Abraham is holy, then the branches are holy also. So he's giving this example, and what's the example in answer to? Did they stumble so they might fall forever? So he's just saying, hey, look, Israel started off in holiness, separated to God and Abraham. And now we know, this is evidence, that they are not fallen forever, that they have not fell, that they would stay fallen. Does that make sense? That's this whole argument that he's putting forward here that God is not done with Israel. He's working all these things together for good. Verse 17, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So now he's, he already told us. Who is he speaking to? Gentiles. Every Gentile, and he's saying, you as a Gentile, you were, so he's, he's continuing this example of a tree. You have the roots, you have a stalk, and you have branches. And he says, look, if you were grafted in, you were a wild olive shoot. All of you guys, just wild olive shoots, right? And he says, if you, you were a wild he was doing this thing. So there's a natural olive, uh, olive shoot or olive tree, which is Israel from Abraham. So it's something he's building. So he says, look, there was something that God was doing inherently. Now, Gentiles could always be part of that, right? This is why you have to be so careful with absolutes. Gentiles could always be part of what God was doing. They always could. They were only 
in a sense, purged, which is a very polite way of saying genocided, basically. There was only that radical judgment that came upon uh, Gentiles when, as a people, they completely rejected and, and went off into really bizarre uh, sexual and violent sin, right? And then, they, and then there was punishment for that. And there was punishment for that for Israel, too. But he has this tree that he's building. Gentiles were always welcome to be a part of it. So we can't just be like, oh, it wasn't a... Yeah, be careful. It's not absolutes. But in this case, he's saying, you, in 56 AD, who he's talking to, you as wild olive shoots are grafted in. So we adopt that because we go, that's who we are. But he says, and there, here's the warning because it's what Israel did. He says, don't be arrogant and realize that you were grafted in. And, and, and not to look at the other branches, like Israel or even other Gentiles, and become pompous about them and go, <laughs> I'm really special. I was grafted in. God wanted me on his team. You know, sorry about your luck. However it might be. He says, don't become arrogant. That's what happened to Israel. Remember, we talked about that. God called them to be a light to the nations. They became introverted. They suffered at the hands of the nations. And then they rejected the nations. And they missed out on what God had called them to do. Because they became arrogant. Based on how they were treated. They They weren't forgiving. They weren't obedient to God. They walked in unbelief. And this had this radical snowball effect all the way into where they're at today and where they were at in 56 AD when Romans gets cranked out in all these, you know, in all these different time periods. That's what's going on. But I apologize, I apologize for the repetition, but God works all things together for good. So he's using the whole thing, Right? So he says, hey, you, you wild olive branch, you, he says, do not get arrogant. And remember that the the root, the promises to Abraham, and ultimately would be Jesus, the root nourishes you. That's his warning. You don't nourish the root. The root doesn't depend on you. You depend on the root, he says. He says, remember that you were grafted in. Don't get arrogant, but remember that everything that you have literally translates to the, the fatness of the olive root. He says, remember, that's, that's, that's been given to you, but don't get arrogant and think that you deserve it or you earned it or anything else. Verse 19, now he's going to address something that a Gentile might say. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. So when Paul's presenting this argument, he says, hey, you were grafted in, don't get arrogant against the other branches. And then he says, but you might say, you Gentile might, might say back to me, well, hey, branches were broken off so I could get in. God broke those people off so that I could be in. But he's going to address that. In verse 20, he says, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, and you stand fast through faith. So don't become proud, but fear. So he says, you're half right. He says, it's true. They were broken off, but they weren't broken off for any other reason than this. They didn't believe. So the idea that somehow, and it's weird how we can kind of think these things, but again, I think a lot of times what we do is we can forget about so much stuff that we've read and so much stuff that we know, and we get caught in just this weird analogy. 
And, and we, if we don't read contextually, we can really come to a place where we think, yeah, yeah, I mean, God had to break a bunch of people. Like there was some sort of limited amount of people that could come into heaven. There is a church that I wouldn't call it a church. There is a group of people that teach that. There will be 144,000 to make to heaven. And they come by their door and they hand you the watchtower. And I'm thinking to myself, there's only 144,000. I'm like keeping my watchtower. And I'm sorry for you guys. But that's what happens. And we can get that same teaching. We go, well, well clearly people had to be broke off so that I could, so I could get in. No, Paul, did, he says, you're right, but they were only broken off because of their unbelief. In other words, Gentiles could always be saved. They could always come to Jehovah. It's not that all of a sudden in the New Testament there was like too many, and so God was like, well, I'm going to break some Jews off and throw them away, and then I'm going to stick some Gentiles in there, and you better be nice to me, because if you're not, I'll break you off and throw you away, and I'll get the other ones and I'll stick them back in. Right? But how many times have you heard that teaching? And, and this is one of the things we talk all the time in our, in our Bible communication class. This is one of the ultimate shrug passages. Meaning someone reads it, they don't keep it in context, they mean well, we're not judging people's hearts. But then they go, well, I don't know, I just know you don't want to get broke off. And you leave the church going, I don't want to get broke off either. But I don't really understand this, because I thought I was saved by grace through faith. But now evidently if I get arrogant, I'm going to get broke off. I don't know what to do, right? And we, what is it? it's weird because it generates a lack of faith. It generates anxiety. It generates fear, not, not healthy fear. This kind of fear of like, like a, a, an abused kid. Like you're going to get the stick when you didn't deserve it. Like at any time, you just be, oh, arrogant. And we completely disregard the Ephesians chapter 2. You've been saved by grace through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. We completely disregard that, that we may boldly say the Lord is our helper. He'll never leave us or forsake us. All of a sudden, all those promises that go right out the window, we're like, we're going to get broke off. So we have to look at it in context. What is he saying? He's just saying, look, God used this thing in this time in 56 A.D., and he's going to continue to work, and we'll read more. He's going to continue to work into the Gentiles until he's done. And then he will continue to work with the Jews. But for now, you wild olive branches, be careful that you don't look at the fact that God in general, because Jews are still getting saved, is working among the Gentiles and think to yourself, I'm really special and God broke those other fools off so he could have me. He says, no, don't think that. They were only broken off because of unbelief. And then he says to Gentiles, you'll get broken off too. Not to individuals. He is not saying, obviously Gentiles are made of, of individuals, but he is not saying to the believer, if you get arrogant in your little branch, I'm breaking you off. We're always arrogant. I mean, let's be honest. We really love ourselves. Has there ever been a day that's passed where at some point during the day we didn't have some sort of thought about how great we are? Even if it just came in some sort of judgment of how terrible someone else was? If someone else is terrible, what does that make us? Better. Right? That's why whenever you're witnessing to someone, they always say the same thing. I'm a good person. I've never killed anyone. You're like, I feel like there's a lower bar for a good person. Like, <laughs> I feel like everybody's a good person. Like, pretty much like 99.9% .9 of the population are good people because they haven't killed someone. But that's how we compare it. We never say, I'm a good person, because 
I've never screamed at someone because almost none of us can say that, right? So it's important to realize he's speaking generally of things that are going on. And he's saying to the Gentiles, we'll, we'll keep reading because he really confirms it for us. But so he says there, um, <clears throat> in verse 20, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. Have a reverence for God, for the root, as we talked about before. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Why did he not spare the natural branches? Keep it in your mind. Why did he not spare them? Unbelief, right? Unbelief. That's why he didn't spare them. That's why they were broken off. So he says, if, if God did not spare the, the, uh, the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen. Why did they fall? From unbelief. Right? That's what caused, they rejected. Now we know, because we're keeping the book in context, if we were to turn back here to Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, when we first started, what was unbelief? Willful ignorance. Having known God, they did not glorify him as God. Every person who's broken off, is, they're not, nobody's broken off over ignorance. It's important to know that. No one's broken off because they were predestined to be broken off. They chose it. They chose willful ignorance. We choose it. But specifically, those who reject Jesus choose it as a life choice. And he says, behold the severity. This is not all of a sudden an assault on believers. Do you, do you understand? It's really important. You don't go from Romans chapter 8, 1. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus to Romans chapter 11. Fear lest you be broke off. And it, that doesn't make sense. He's speaking in general terms of Gentiles or Jews, right? Because chapter 10, was it, verse 12 tells us as far as salvation is concerned, there is now no difference between Jews and Gentiles. So he's saying... Be careful. Don't be proud. Understand the fact that God was willing to set aside the Jews. He was willing to allow their hearts to be hardened. And he'll do that to you, Gentiles. If as we became, as a group, if we become Gentiles, if we, if we become proud against, if we begin to look for our righteousness in our own merit, right? Because the way we get proud against the Jews is to say, I have I, have, I deserve something. I am something. That's what pride is. Pride is to esteem yourself better or bigger or more important than something, right? That's, that's what it is. It's to look at someone else or something else and to say, you're beneath me and I'm better than you. And that's what gives me the right to treat you poorly. It's what gives me the right to, to assault you. Now, I'm not saying like, oh, I'm, you say, oh, I'm proud of my kids. Like, I get that. Like, you're proud of them in the sense that I'm happy with what they've accomplished. That's great. But he's not talking about that. He's talking about personal pride. And he's saying, just as God was willing to set aside the Jews for a time, which he sovereignly used for good, he will also and can also do that for you. And he says, verse 23, and even they, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. Again, the same answer. Did they fall that they might fall permanently? No. Any Jew, who's the they? Any Jew... Even though, what have we been reading? They're set aside. There's a spirit of stupor. God has closed the... We're reading. Yet, in the midst of that, personal responsibility. Anyone who decides to believe is grafted back in. 
It's not exclusive. And it's not uh, some sort of weird deal where God prevents people from trusting him. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild uh, olive tree and grafted in contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? This is all the answer to the same question and the same context. He says, look, if you were grafted in contrary to nature, what's normally not done, if God grafted you in when you were not part of his original uh, Israeli people, not saying the Gentiles weren't to be saved, but didn't have the advantage of being a Jew, and God still grafted you in, how much more is he able to graft in a Jew? Someone who was born and raised and had all that idea, all the ideas about who God is and the law and all these things, and has the promises, right? A seminal Jew, meaning a, a, someone who's, who is physically descended from Abraham, has the promises. And so he's saying, look, if it could happen to you, how much more can it happen with the Jew? Not that they get more saved or something like that, but, but what a reunion it will be for them. He says, lest you be wise in your own, verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now we already know, how did the, how did the partial hardening happen? Well, he, we already have those quotes, right? That he, he, he closed the eyes of their prophets. That they, in their unbelief, rebelled. It's also noteworthy, because we might be tempted to go back to chapter 9 and go, Aha! He hardened Her- uh, Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now he's hardened the Jews. It's a partial hardening. He hardened the Jews. There's a big difference. The word in... in uh, chapter 9, when it says that he hardened Pharaoh, is where we get our word sclerosis. You know, arterial sclerosis or sclerosis of the liver. And it literally means a hardening or a stiffening. A stubbornness is the implication in the Greek. That there, that there was a stubbornness in Pharaoh, and he, he made his heart stubborn, and then God confirmed that stubbornness in him and used him for his glory. This word isn't stubbornness. This is a different word. It actually means to be dull. So when it says here that there's a partial hardening, it's not the same thing that happened to Pharaoh. The idea here is that there's a dullness in them. Uh, they're not paying attention. They've left. They've, they've uh, neglected. That's the idea here. Not that there's been like this, I will you know, never come back to God again or something like that. Because you see that in Israel today, right? I mean, there's a lot of Israelis that are actually very much about Jehovah. But they're in a stupor, and they reject Jesus. And there will be severity for that. He's going to go on to talk about that even more. And he says, um, verse 26, And in this way, uh, oh, I'm sorry, let me me finish that verse. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Okay. So again, we have to ask ourselves, Is he speaking literally, or is he speaking in generalities? When he says, and in this way, meaning the fullness of the Gentile ends, and some people look at that as when the last Gentile gets saved, or the last that God is working among the Gentiles, you can can decide what that means for yourself, because it's it's a little bit disputed. Um, So let me know what you come up with. But they... 
essentially, once he's done with the Gentiles, then he'll begin to work with Israel again. And it says, and all Israel shall be saved. So we have to ask ourselves, is he literally saying right now, because he quotes, right, the deliverer will come from Zion. So he makes a quote out of it, out of the Old Covenant. Is he literally saying that at that point, every single Israeli will come to Christ and get saved? Is that what he's saying? No, it's not what he's saying. We know that because the quote that he use here, uses here, the deliverer will come from Zion and banish and godliness from Jacob, is speaking of when Jesus returns and he saves the Israelites from the Antichrist and from earthly persecution. And he leaves them in victory. Now we also know from Jeremiah 31 and out of Ezekiel, and I have those written down, I knew I wouldn't remember them. Yeah, Ezekiel 20 and uh, Jeremiah 31. It tells us very clearly that when Christ returns, he will actually purge rebellious Jews that have rejected him. That there will be judgment to them. He'll judge them, is what it says. So he's not saying here that when God's done with the Gentiles, all of a sudden every single Jew just gets saved. Why? Because everybody gets to choose, right? Everybody gets to decide. But he himself will show up. That would be pretty motivating, I think. He himself, it didn't work the first time though, but he himself will show up and whoever clings to him, acknowledges him, will be saved. Now, we don't really have a big problem with this, I don't think, because we're already told way back in Romans chapter 9 that not all Jews are a true Jew in the spiritual sense, right? That only those who are of faith, the faith of Abraham, are the true Israeli. Just like we would say of Christian, not everyone who wears the label Christian is a Christian. Not that it's for us to decide. I'm not promoting that at all. But there are a lot of people, you know, well, man, it's been a long time since I looked, but I want to say back in like 2010, like 70% of America called themselves Christians. It seems unlikely. <laughs> I, I, I can't say. I'm not God. But it feels unlikely. And so... The proclamation, though, is that God is working all things together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. He's working it for the Gentiles. He's working it for the Jews. He's working for those whom he called. Who did he call? Those whom he foreknew, Prognosco, the people that he knew would choose him and follow him. They would choose him. He says, those are the people that I am working every single thing. The Jews rejecting, the Jews accepting, individuals wars, all these things. He says, I'm working all of those things together for the good of what? His purpose, his people that he's gathering together to be with him forever, which could be anyone. It's not a limited thing. It's not just the elect. The elect are people that he foreknew that would choose him. Those are who the elect are. It's not just a select amount of people. It's anyone, whosoever, shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And it's just, it's a tremendous thought to think that whether it's the Ukraine or local government or whatever it might be that we might take exception with as far as, you know, with the word, God can use it for good. So he goes on there. We'll finish up in one minute. He says there, as regards the gospels, they are enemies for your sake. They, who's they? Israel. Is every single Israeli the enemy? No. Generalities, right? There are plenty of Israelis getting saved. But he says, for you, in the gospel, they're your enemies. They do not like you because of the gospel in 56 AD. And maybe now, too. I haven't been over there. I've never checked. 
But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of the forefathers. Now remember, we get all scared again. Well, the election, the elect, the elect. Well, who's the elect? It's the same word as chosen. Verse 2 of the same chapter. For God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Who are the people he foreknew? Turn back to the origination of the thought there in, eight, in uh, chapter 8. Those whom he foreknew, he did also predestine to be conformed to the image of his son. So who are the foreknown? People that would choose him, that he gave a destiny to, of the Jews, of the Greeks, that would be like Jesus. So we don't have to get scared by like, oh, they elect, all oh, that. He just elected them and he sent everyone else to hell. No. I understand how we could get to that thought and think that, but only if we really reject what the context of, of, of Romans 9 through 11 is and what he tells us there in chapter 8. He says, but as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are, without, uh, are irrevocable. For just as you were once at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. So just as God has worked in the Gentiles because of the Jews' disobedience, once the Gentile, the fullness of the Gentiles is done, they also are going to receive the same mercy collectively. For God has consigned all to disobedience that, all may, that he may have mercy on all. You know, it's funny. If you look in the Greek, all means all. He has mercy on all. He doesn't have mercy on the elect or this group of people or that. He has mercy on all. Whosoever will may come on all. Oh, the depths and riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how or excuse me, inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And Paul wraps this section up by saying, look, the, uh, the word unsearchable, it's kind of funny. It literally means, um, it's like tracking. It's, it's like a tracking reference. You can't follow his footsteps to figure out where he went. That's the idea. His, his, his wisdom is untrackable. You, you can't even sometimes detect how he came to, how he did that. And Paul just gives this amazing kind of benediction here of this thought, this doxology by just saying, hey, man, God is so big and so strong, and so wise. It's unknowable. It's unsearchable. Now, one day it says that as we, are, we will know him as we are known. So one day we'll be able to kind of piece it together in, in some sort of intellect and, and spiritual understanding and, and platonic intimacy with God. But not today. Not this day. Someday. And then I, I just love this. Who's given a gift to him that he might be repaid? <laughs> Like, who's ever given something to God to make him a debtor? God doesn't, he's never owed anyone anything. It's never happened in the history of any history of, I don't know how the history of eternity works, but it's never happened. Where someone's like, hey, God, I got this awesome, like, song I wrote you. Now you should owe me something. Or, hey, God, I got this awesome, no, it's never happened. In other words, he's not indebted to any person. He's able to work everything together for good. He never owes someone else that he would have to rob someone else of their good. He works everything together for good for those that love him and those who are called according to his purpose. And that's the whole gist 
of like eight weeks of Romans 8 through 11. So I apologize. I never want to make things like super like academic and cerebral, but not that I probably could, but it's, it's one of those things where this is, it's important to understand these things, not to get saved. It's not important to know these things. You don't, you don't have to know this to get saved. You just have to know that Jesus Christ loves you and he came to this earth and he shed his blood on your behalf because of our sin, because of our moral wrong, not just what we do, but who we are intrinsically, that he cleansed it all by his sin and by receiving him at Calvary, you can have that eternal life with him because he rose from the dead. That's what you need to get saved. And if you don't know that today or you want to get saved, come talk to us. So this isn't salvation information. This is peace information. This is joy information. This is at rest information. To know that God is so on your side and so working on your behalf that not an invasion you know, of the Ukraine, not an invasion of the U.S., not China and, and Russia banding together, that we already know. We already know that Russia is coming down to attack Israel. We already know that. It's in Ezekiel. There's a League of Nations. We already know that. They're coming down. They're coming with a lot of other nations, and they're going to attack Israel. We already know that's going to happen. And we know that they're going to defend ourselves, and there's going to be some sort of catastrophic event that kills hundreds of thousands of people, and they're going to have to go out and mark the bodies. It's a very interesting prophecy. Very interesting. And God says, through all the, that, those events, they'll know that I am the Lord alone. So we already know that whether it's Putin, somebody from Russia at some point is going to cause some serious shenanigans. We already know that. We don't have to be afraid of that. We know that the countries, uh, seemingly the U.S. and some other countries, that they're just going to stand back and go, you, you shouldn't do that. But leave us alone. So we already know. But guess what? God's going to work it for good. Those things aren't good. We're not excited about it. We're not excited about what's happening in Ukraine. We're not excited about war. We're not excited about it. We don't endorse it and go, yeah, this is really great. We want more people to die. But what we do know is that God will work it together for good to accomplish his purpose, which is to have a bride for his son. And that that will not fail. And if someday, if missiles should fall on us and we should perish or have to watch our children perish or go hungry or whatever it might be, then so be it. It will be hard. It will be tear-ridden. But the hope of Christianity is that we transcend this life and our tears and that we have something greater, a greater hope, that no matter what the difficulty, what the suffering, that the Holy Spirit is able to work in our hearts and those around us to accomplish that which He always desired, which is a relationship with you. And that's how big God is. Amen. And that's, I mean, that's really what these chapters have been about. That there's not one thing that can crop up or happen that He can't work for good. So be encouraged. We're going to go out of here. The world is going to hell in a handbasket. It's just the truth. We don't rejoice in that. We're not excited about that. But it's what's going to happen. There's a very little chance that it gets better. But the reality is, regardless of what does happen, and I'm not trying to minimize emotion and, and sorrow. I'm not saying that at all. 
What I'm saying is that it's overcomable. Even the most difficult of, of, of things. So don't get discouraged. You know, we can pray for Ukraine. We can, you know, there might be ways to help. I don't, I don't know. I think there's certain people that are wanting to help in these things. But don't get discouraged. Don't be fearful. God will take care of you. I love Job. Hey, though he slay me, I will trust him. Right? It's going to be all right. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you're working amazing things all the time. Lord, we, can, we just acknowledge with Paul, like, who can know your wisdom? Who could track your steps? Who could try to figure out all this stuff? We can't. We're puny. But Lord, you're mighty. And we're so thankful. We're so glad for your love and your kindness. Lord, that you've, from the beginning of Let There Be Light, you've always worked on your behalf. Lord, you've always worked as a God of love and a God of justice. And Lord, we're so thankful to, to be part of that. And Lord, we pray that you would help us in this really scary time to, to lay aside our own fear, but more so to be able to, to help others in the community know that there is security to be had, to know that you do have uh, great things in store. So Lord, we commit our hearts to you. Thank you that your giftings, your callings, your salvation, it is without repentance. And Lord, that you have uh, salvation for many others in our, in our county and all over the U.S. and the world and and. Show us how we can be a part of that, please. And Lord, we just commit our hearts to you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, God bless you guys.